Hello and welcome to the What the Heck podcast. I'm your host, Glenn. Every week I explore something unexplained, talk about what it is and look at what else it could possibly be. Research is done as academically as possible and references will be given after the stories. This week, the final episode of the season is a deep dive into something I first referenced in episode 15. Get some snacks, a notebook, and get yourself comfortable. Today, we're looking at the Knights Templar and the conspiracy theories surrounding them. I can't start this episode without talking about how history was recorded before the time of the Templars. Right from the start of this part of history, it's very clear that most of what we know of everything prior to Christianity in Jerusalem comes from the Old Testament. There aren't any accounts from outsiders, and there doesn't seem to be any physical evidence either. This isn't helped by the present-day religious and political thoughts about archaeological digs at the Temple Mount. Some even argue that there isn't any historical basis in the stories of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. There's too much circumstantial evidence, political, economic and cultural, to ignore the biblical account though. There are details of the relationship between Solomon and King Hiram of Tyre, who was himself a historical figure. Israel has been mentioned by the ancient Egyptians as early as 1209 BCE, and within the century after King Solomon's reign, events and people in the Bible corroborate with Assyrian scriptures and then in contemporary Persian, Greek and Roman texts. The problem with historical records of the time is that they were often written long after the events that they describe. The account in Kings 1, which describes the construction of the first temple, was written when the Jewish people were broken and oppressed. Part of the writing of it was to remind them of a time when they had been powerful and united in the presence of God, who had been with them inside the temple. It was more than a historical account. It was written as a beacon of hope to show the Jews that they could restore what they had lost. This issue extends to the Islamic viewpoint of events. There don't seem to be many primary sources for the early Islamic conquests, with accounts first surfacing more than 800 years after them and even the first histories appear around 150 years after Muhammad's death, and some of these accounts contradict the later ones. It's difficult to create a definitive history of the earliest events of the Templar story, but I'll do my best to deliver the history based on what evidence we have. And we're not starting with the Templars. We have to go way back, around 4,000 years, to begin this story. Jerusalem, where most of today's episode centres upon, was originally a place called Ophel Hill. 
tombs have been discovered in the area, dating back to 3200 BCE. To the west lies Canaan, leading into the Mediterranean coast, and to the east lies the River Jordan, where Jericho stood in the river's valley. However, for a long time, not many people lived near Ophel Hill in Judah. The Israelites came from Mesopotamia, settling in Canaan for a time. Famine drove them to Egypt around 1750 BCE, and they became slaves. They wouldn't begin their exodus from Egypt then, until 1250 BCE, under the leadership of Moses. At this time, the Jebusites had settled in Canaan. They were likely the remnants of the Hittite Empire, seeking refuge in the Jordan Valley. While they were establishing themselves, Moses took the Jews to the wilderness near Mount Sinai, where Yahweh, the Jewish God, directed them to Canaan. In a historical artefact, a stele from around 1209 BCE, it is said that Meneptah, son of Ramses, had fought with the allied tribes of Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh and Gilead, which was collectively known as Israel at the time. And this record doesn't support the idea of the Jewish exodus from Egypt. The history is disputed because of this stele, and it's completely unknown whether or not the biblical account is correct or not. It is, however, possible that some Jews escaped Egypt, making their way to Canaan, which would have made for quite the dramatic story. Around 1020 BCE, Saul organised the northern tribes called Israel, becoming their first king. After his death, around 20 years later, the tribal elders turned to David to lead them. David had served under Saul, but rebelled against him later. Since then, David had established himself as king over the tribes of Judah in the south. David agreed, uniting Judah and Israel into a single kingdom. This left the Jebusites surrounded by that kingdom. Within seven years, David had conquered the area and established the city of Jerusalem. This was important because the city didn't belong to Judah or Israel, making it impossible for one of the 12 tribes of the Israelites to lay a claim to it. The city was built with a surrounding wall and a citadel inside of it. Unlike other conquests of the time, it was a mixed city. The Canaanites and the Jebusites weren't expelled from it, and the Israelites just inhabited the space alongside them. For a while, the most sacred of artefacts belonging to the Israelites was kept in a tent outside the city called the Tabernacle. After David had established himself inside Jerusalem, he decided to move it inside the city. However, 
The idea that he would house the artifact within the city was quickly refused by the prophet Nathan. He told David that God had not needed a temple while the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, so he would not want one now. He said that God would build a house of David, a lineage that would bring the Messiah. However, God's refusal was short-lived though. David was refused because he was a warrior king with blood on his hands, thus unfit to build the temple. He was allowed to decide on the placement, draw up plans and collect the materials though. North of Jerusalem, which sat on Ophel Hill, there was a higher summit named Zion. Here, a Jebusite named Arona had an estate. When a plague struck the kingdom of David, killing roughly 70,000 people in three days, an angel appeared to David. In the vision, the angel was standing on the threshing floor of the estate on Mount Zion. David decided that he must build the temple there after building an altar and making a sacrifice to God. Arona offered the floor for free, but David insisted on paying for it. It's likely that David understood the sacredness of the floor since the Jebusites used them for both prophetic divination and for the use of the fertility cult to their storm god, Baal. By paying Arona, David ensured that the site was under no other obligations and the site of the temple was marked out. It was now time for someone else to build it. As David lay on his deathbed, his son Adonijah had himself crowned outside the city. In response, David gave his support to his Jebusite wife, Bathsheba. She was also supported by the prophet Nathan and the high priest Zadok. They led Bathsheba's son Solomon to the religious artifact outside of the city where he was crowned king and caused the immediate collapse of Adonijah's usurpation. Solomon continued David's campaign of assimilating smaller tribes into the kingdom, establishing a fleet at the Gulf of Aqaba, which leads into the Red Sea, trading horses with Cilicia, getting timber from Lebanon and sailing as far as Yemen in search of spices, gemstones and metals. He helps the Israelite empire reach the height of power and wealth. The story of Solomon says that when he was crowned, God asked him what he wanted. Solomon answered that he wanted to be able to tell the difference between good and bad so that he could lead well. God bestowed that gift upon him, explaining that there had been nobody like him before and there would never be anyone like him again. 
This wisdom extends into Islam, where King Solomon, known as Suleiman, is a paragon of wisdom and in communion with the natural world. He is said to have the ability to speak to birds and was able to communicate with the jinn, apparently commanding them to help build his temple. He appears in the Thousand and One Nights, trapping a jinnie in a jar for 1800 years. And I mentioned him in Creature Feature 26. His power came from a special ring that he wore. The ring itself carried the seal of Solomon, which looks similar to the Star of David. Some see sexual symbols in the two triangles of the seal, suggesting that it represents harmony in the universe and between the sexes. Solomon doubled the size of Jerusalem, building north towards Mount Zion and the threshing floor. Once there, he built a massive palace for himself and another for his wife. He also built an armory using the timber from Lebanon, a treasury, a judgment hall, complete with an ivory throne. And on the site of the old threshing floor, he had the Temple of Solomon built. It was a massive undertaking involving 30,000 Israelites, an additional 80,000 men to quarry stone, 70,000 more to carry it to Jerusalem, and 3,300 supervisors. The numbers are unlikely to be literal, added in to show the power he had. The construction took seven years and five months, with the work starting in 958 BCE and being completed in 951 BCE. The temple measured around 30 yards or 27.4 metres in length, 10 yards or 9.1 metres in width, and was 15 yards or 13.7 metres high. The purpose of a temple at the time wasn't as much a place of worship as it was a house for God. In typical fashion, it was based on a house of the time. There were three chambers, which became increasingly more private. The further into the temple, the more holy the space was. The outer chamber was the Ulam, which served as the porch area. The second chamber was the Hakal, where the religious objects and decorations were kept. Finally, the innermost chamber was called the Dabir, which was a small and windowless chamber in the shape of a cube. This was the Holy of Holies, where Yahweh would reside. To complete the temple, Solomon had the religious artefact moved from outside the city into the Dabir. The religious artefact is one of the most famous artefacts in Christianity, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I imagine a lot of you are reliving that scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the Nazis opened the Ark, but that's not really what it was. It was said to have held the Ten Commandments, 
Stone tablets holding the rules that Yahweh had given the Jews as they wandered the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. Once inside the temple, it was flanked by two huge golden cherubim and stayed untouched for over 300 years. According to 1 Chronicles 13.10, that was because anyone who came into contact with the Ark without taking proper precautions would be met with immediate death. The death itself isn't explained, and so we got that scene in Raiders when the Ark was opened. In 586 BCE, the original temple was destroyed by the Assyrians also known as the Babylonians. By that time, the Ark had disappeared from the temple. The second temple was built around 520 BCE and was later expanded by King Herod. This temple was completely empty, instead being the house of a spiritual entity and not a physical presence. The second temple was destroyed in 66 CE during the first Jewish revolt against the Romans. In 70 CE, the temple was completely destroyed by an accidental fire. During the second Jewish revolt, the rebellion occupied Jerusalem with the intention of rebuilding the temple. However, the Romans returned and defeated the rebellion causing Jerusalem to become a pagan city for a time. During the nearly 400 years that the Ark lived in the temple, Jerusalem used its store of treasure to pay off foreign conquerors. However, although it was covered in gold, the Ark was left completely untouched. In the Bible, the last appearance of the Ark was during the reign of Josiah, which was 640 to 609 BCE. It wasn't mentioned when the Babylonians sacked the temple in 586 BCE. According to 2 Maccabees 2.4-8, the prophet Jeremiah was told of the attack by God and took the ark to Mount Nebo, put it in a dwelling cave with the tabernacle and incense altar, and closed the cave off without marking the spot. This was backed up by the oral traditions of the Mishnah, which were first put into writing around 200 BCE, and the 1952 discovery of the Copper Scroll, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some believe that the Ark was taken to the Valley of the Kings, which was reflected in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Others believe that the Ark lies somewhere inside the Temple Mount. According to rabbinic legend, Solomon knew that the Babylonians would attack and had the Ark removed from the temple, only to bury it directly below where it sat in the temple. The legend was believed by the chief rabbi of the Ashkenazi community in Israel, and he objected to archaeological excavations in the 1960s out of fear that the Ark would be uncovered, which would lead to death without knowledge of the ritual to prevent it. With Solomon's temple destroyed and the Ark of the Covenant lost, 
it seemed that the city of Jerusalem was no longer the home of Judaism. During the time of the Roman Empire, they held the lands around the Mediterranean. Christianity was outlawed and Christians had to endure persecution for their faith. Until 313 CE that was. At the time, Emperor Constantine gave the Edict of Toleration, which made Christian worship legal across the empire. By the end of the century, Christianity was almost the universal religion in the Roman world. The word Catholic means universal and all-embracing, and was initially the word used to describe the Christian church. The faithful were able to travel freely across Christian lands as they wished. Unlike other religions, there was a criticism against attaching faith to a specific place, and so pilgrimages seemed like a thing of the past. However, that didn't stop them. As early as the fourth century, when the Christians were persecuted and pilgrimages were dangerous, Christians would go on pilgrimages to holy sites. Even from the second century, a cave of the nativity was being shown to people who wanted to see the places associated with the story of Jesus. It was similar to the memorials to holy people and places in Judaism. The difference was the Christian fascination with graves and corpses. They were unclean to the Jewish people, but were seen as the focus of hope to the Christians due to the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of the final judgment. The era of Christianity brought in by Emperor Constantine's Edict of Tolerance really began the Christian pilgrimages. This was led by Constantine's mother, Helena, who visited the Holy Land between 326 CE and 328 CE. As she traveled, Constantine had churches built to celebrate the central events of Christian belief. The most important ones were the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, built on the place where Jesus was believed to have been buried and resurrected from. Helena was the one to discover it. None of the Jewish artefacts and monuments were of any interest to the Christian pilgrims and were never restored. During this time, two statues of Emperor Hadrian were in the area of the temple, as well as a stone where the Jewish people went to pray. Christians had almost no ties to the Temple Mount and so didn't really populate it, although a church was built on the southern end of the platform. These pilgrimages weren't just to see the site that Jesus had been to during his life. It was also a chance for Christians to find the relics of his life and parts of the bodies of saints. Jesus and the Virgin Mary had both ascended, thus leaving no physical evidence that they had even been there. 
mostly. Anything that had fallen or been removed from their bodies didn't go with them, and soon strands of Mary's hair and her breast milk were identified and enshrined as holy relics. It was also apparent that Jesus had ascended without his foreskin because he was Jewish and would have been circumcised. This foreskin had somehow found its way into the possession of Mary Magdalene, who had given it to John the Baptist. The foreskin, known as the Holy Prepuce, is now in the possession of the Vatican, or one of the 17 different churches in Europe who claim to own it. The Holy Prepuce wasn't the only relic related specifically to Jesus that had appeared. Helena, Constantine's mother, found the true cross in the Holy Sepulchre when she discovered the tomb. The Holy Lance, or Spear of Truth, was also found, as well as the Shroud of Turin and one of the possible relics thought to be the Holy Grail the chalice that Jesus drank out of at the Last Supper. The size of the Roman Empire caused Constantine to establish an imperial capital on the Bosphorus, a strategic meeting point between Europe and Asia. On the site of the ancient city of Byzantium, Constantine built his new city. He expanded the walls and dedicated the city to Jesus Christ in 330 CE. The city of Byzantium quickly became known as Constantinople, which is now known as Istanbul, Turkey. In 395 CE, the Roman Empire was split into an east and a west. In the west, the empire was ruled from Rome, and in the east, Constantinople. In the East, Greek culture flourished, mingling with Christianity, leading to modern historians calling the Eastern Empire the Byzantine Empire. The empire stood long after Rome fell in 476 CE, all the way until the 15th century, when Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Turks. However, Constantine, is the reason for Christian orthodoxy. With Christianity being tolerated, it was open to doctrinal splits. The idea of the Holy Trinity was threatened by Arianism, which made a distinction between Jesus and God when Catholicism didn't have that belief. In 325 CE, Constantine called the first general council of the church at Nicaea. 220 bishops attended from Egypt, Syria, Italy and Spain. The matter was debated and the bishops voted. The vote was decided in favour of Catholicism and the Nicene Creed became the official stance of the church and remains so in the Roman and Orthodox churches today. 300 years later, during the reign of the Byzantine Empire Heraclius between 610 and 641, a pivotal event happened. A man named Muhammad took refuge in Medina after being driven from Mecca. His flight from Mecca in 622 
marked the beginning of the Muslim calendar. However, Heraclius was busy with the Persians, who were advancing and spreading their religion, Zoroastrianism, throughout the region. Wherever it spread, Christians were persecuted. In 614 CE, the Persians took Jerusalem, stealing the true cross. Once this was revealed to Heraclius in 622, his campaign against the Persians became religious. In 627, Heraclius overthrew the Persian king and restored the empire, more importantly, returning the true cross to Jerusalem. Almost as soon as it was over, a new war was beginning. Muhammad had died in 632, and by 633, an army under Umar, the religious followers of the new religion Islam, declared a jihad, a holy Islamic war, against the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantines knew next to nothing about Islam and believed it was a resurgence of Arianism. This belief led to them being woefully unprepared for the incoming conflict. In 636, the army of Umar invaded Palestine, finding their way to Jerusalem in 637. The city's defence was organised by Patriarch Sophronius, with the help from the Byzantine Empire. Despite this, Jerusalem fell into Muslim hands in 638 after a seven-month siege. The Christians were forced to surrender to the Caliph Umar, but not before they had removed the true cross and taken it to Constantinople. Upon entering the city, Umar asked to be taken to the Temple Mount, which he called the Haram al-Sharif, the Noble Sanctuary. His intention was to search for relics, and especially the Mirab of David, which the Prophet Muhammad had spoken of. The Temple Mount was in a state of disrepair, and the Caliph ordered that it be cleared and had a temporary mosque built on the site that is now the Al-Asqa Mosque, and was built 60 years later. Al-Asqa means the farthest and was originally applied to the whole of the Temple Mount. It marked the horizon of Muslim ambition and was where Muhammad's vision of ascending to heaven was set in the Quran 17.1. By the time the Al-Asqa Mosque was finished in 715, the Muslim armies had established an empire of Islam stretching from the borders of China all the way to the Atlantic coast of Spain, while Christianity had lost more than half of the land it had owned. The Muslim capital changed over time. First it was ruled from Medina in Arabia, then it moved to Damascus in Syria from 661. After a violent transfer of power, the capital moved to Baghdad in Iraq in 750. However, Arab policy remained intact and the people in the conquered lands were heavily taxed. These taxes were paid and in return, the people would have their lives and properties protected 
and were allowed to practice their own religions. The tax could only be imposed on non-Muslims though, which meant that there wasn't a lot of interest in converting anyone, meaning that Syria, Egypt and Palestine remained overwhelmingly Christian for a time. However, the Muslim leaders had imposed restrictions on the people to prevent them from attempting to take power back. Places of worship were not allowed to be built and any public displays of faith were also prohibited. They were left outside of the community. Jews and Christians were not allowed to be part of anything to do with Muslim life. This allowed heretics to flourish, at least by the Byzantine standards that had been agreed upon. The Byzantines and the West could only view Islam as a form of Arianism, mistaking it for a form of Christianity because they couldn't conceive of anything else. The heretical deviations of Christianity under Islam gave way to a new time of religious writings. It spread to Europe and created works under the theme of the Book of Revelations, especially the divine warrior who would save the world. These writings and depictions would later give way to the belief of the Antichrist, especially in the poor and the oppressed Christians. The rise of Islam had reached Western Europe and was beginning to encroach on more space. European Christians were beginning to stir, but what they would do was, so far, an unknown. Initially, the Christian pilgrims were undisturbed by the Muslim presence in Syria and Palestine. The Muslims understood the act of pilgrimage, taking them to Mecca themselves. The pilgrims were initially seen as a source of income for the Muslims at Jerusalem and other holy sites, and the numbers of Christian pilgrims continued to grow. The River Jordan was especially significant for the pilgrims because there they could reenact the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 16 to 17. The sick were particularly interested because Jesus had performed baptisms on all the sick in Jerusalem when the temple priests had refused to do so. Because of this, the Jordan was a place of high traffic in the Christian pilgrimages, but not the most popular. That spot was reserved for the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This was actually two buildings. There was the Basilica, or Martyrium, situated at Golgotha, the place where Jesus was crucified. The other part was the Church of the Anastasis, which was placed over Jesus' tomb. This site was the most popular of the pilgrims' journeys. For 300 years, the Christians were able to freely take pilgrimages to the holy places in the Bible. In 938, the Muslims attacked the Christians during the Palm Sunday procession in Jerusalem. They set fire to the Martyrium and damaged the Anastasis Church. 
This happened again in 966, and this time the Patriarch, who had hidden in a vat of oil, was set alight and burned alive. They seized part of the eastern entrance of the Holy Sepulchre and installed the mosque. To compound the situation, migratory Turks, known as the Seljuks, began to appear in the Abbasid Caliphate around 970. They converted to Islam and became Sunni Muslims. The Shia Muslims had taken hold in Persia and much of Iraq, and the Abbasid Caliphate had Baghdad, where the Sunni Muslims reigned from. The Seljuks were invaluable to the Arabs because of their martial qualities, but the whole Caliphate was no longer united since Spain, Egypt and other parts of Africa had ruled independently from them for a while. The Seljuks took this as an open invitation and took Baghdad and the Caliphate in 1055. In 1071, the Seljuks and their new Caliphate fought with the Byzantines and defeated them at Manzikert in eastern Anatolia, which left the rest of Asia Minor open to the Turkish conquest and threatening Constantinople. Still in 1071, the Seljuks took the North Syria from the Byzantines and Jerusalem from the Fatimid Muslims. The reduction of the Byzantine Empire to almost only its capital had the Emperor Michael VII scared. He appealed to Pope Gregory VII for aid. The desperation was evident since the Great Schism of 1054 had split the church between Latin and Orthodox, meaning that the Byzantine Empire didn't really contact Rome at all. Despite the schism, the Pope was ready to help Emperor Michael. In 1063, the papacy had given its blessing to form a crusade against the Muslims in Spain, and Michael thought he might get the aid now. However, Pope Gregory couldn't call on the powers of Europe to help because they were caught up in the investiture controversy, a conflict between the church and state. While Michael was waiting, the Seljuks continued their campaign into Syria and Palestine. They took Damascus from the Fatimids in 1076, and when the Fatimids retook Jerusalem that year, the Seljuks took it back. They massacred the entire population of Muslims in the city, as well as a large number of Fatimid-supporting Jews, but spared the Christians. All the while, pilgrimages never really stopped. They were increasingly more dangerous because of the fighting, and pilgrims couldn't go anywhere without an armed guard to protect them from marauding brigands and fighters. In the 1080s, Byzantine Emperor Alexius I began to fight back against the Seljuks. He reclaimed the Black Sea and around the area of the Sea of Marmara during the 1080s. In order to push harder against the Seljuks, he sent an appeal to Pope Urban II in 1095. The response was completely unexpected. The Council of Clermont 
was called in France by Pope Urban in the late autumn of 1095. It was more concerned with the truth of God, a way that the church had been trying to avoid feudal warfare. There was an air of insecurity and desperation across society, with floods and plague in 1094, and droughts and famine in 1095. A meteor shower had appeared in spring 1095, which was a sign of a great movement of people, but also seemed like an apocalyptic sign. However, Pope Urban had already been formulating a plan to aid Emperor Alexius. His aim was to provide reinforcements to the Byzantine Empire to help them drive back the Seljuks from Asia Minor. He made a speech on the penultimate day of the council. It had gotten so large that it had to be moved from Claremont Cathedral into a field outside the eastern city gate. 3,000 clerics and a multitude of others, both clerical and laypersons, gathered for the council on the day of the speech, not knowing what was about to happen. Only four reports from chroniclers survive, so this is the best approximation of what happened. Pope Urban began the speech by telling those in attendance of what the Seljuks were doing advancing into the heart of Christian lands, mistreating the population and desecrating their shrines and culture. He told them that the emperor of Byzantium had asked the West to help them. He didn't just emphasize the recovery of the Byzantine empire. He spoke on the importance of Jerusalem and the amount of suffering the pilgrims went through. He made an appeal the West would go and rescue the East. The nobility would have to stop fighting one another to fight in a righteous war. Anyone who dies in battle would have a remission of sins. It was called an armed pilgrimage because the word crusade wasn't in use until the 13th century when they were all over. Adhemar, the Bishop of Le Puy, immediately knelt before the Pope and begged to be allowed to go. This action was likely pre-arranged between the two, but it caused such a great enthusiasm that knights, peasants, the rich and the poor all surged forwards to ask permission to go. Adhemar was named as Urban's representative on the pilgrimage, and following his example, everyone on the expedition received a red cross of material that was sewn onto the corner of their coat as a symbol. It showed that they carried a cross, just like Jesus had. But this was just the beginning of the movement. Along the way, Urban had advised priests and bishops to preach the crusade, who had begun to call for others to join. Some attacked Jews, because the size of this army was so vast that some of them had taken it upon themselves to decide who was worthy of saving, causing a violent streak across the pilgrimage. These were part of the masses who were recruited by some of the bishops, who spun wild tales to get more numbers. During the spring that year, as many as 8,000 Jews were killed or took their own lives in Germany alone to avoid the rabble. 
The army led by Adamar and the lords joining the pilgrimage played no part in these massacres, assembling their armies in France and setting out to liberate Jerusalem. They set out in the summer with Adamar's army reaching Constantinople between autumn 1096 and spring 1097. Of the 40,000 pilgrims in the march, only 4,500 were nobles and knights, meaning that the majority of these people were untrained laypersons. The army was ferried across the Bosphorus and laid siege to Nicaea, the Seljuk capital, later in the spring. When Nicaea fell in the summer of 1097, Emperor Alexius made sure he received the surrender and not the pilgrims. It was nothing new for the Byzantines, but the Westerners hadn't done this before. The Byzantines took control, making sure that they took back Asia Minor strategically rather than pushing straight for Jerusalem. In 1097, the army stood before the city of Antioch. They took the city the next year and the pilgrims parted ways with the Byzantines. Instead of turning Antioch over to Alexius, one of the nobles turned it into a principality. During the trek to Antioch, the peasants who joined the pilgrimage had become barbaric. Called the Tafur, they looted every city that was recaptured, sexually assaulting the Muslim women and committing massacres in order to exterminate the Muslim population. By 1099, the pilgrimage had found its way to Jerusalem. It had been reconquered by the Fatimids and the Christians were sent away from the city. The Fatimid governor closed the gates and attempted to wait out the pilgrims who had left themselves stranded. In their haste to capture Jerusalem, they hadn't taken the port of Jaffa nearby. In the summer, the pilgrims launched an attack and overran their outer defences, but couldn't scale the walls in multiple places. Jaffa had been left unprotected and six ships sailed in to support the pilgrims. One night, the attack resumed, lasting through the next day and night. Around noon on the second day, Godfrey of Bouillon got onto the northern battlements and soon the pilgrims were inside the city, taking it back. They forced their way to the Temple Mount, where the Muslims were retreating, and forced them to surrender. The next day, the Tafur killed all of them, angering a man named Tancred. To add to their atrocities, the Tafur locked the Jews in the synagogue that they'd taken refuge in and set it on fire, killing them all for being allies of the Muslim. The pilgrims had won and taken back what they had previously had, but the nobles would, for the most part, return home. Someone needed to protect the Holy Land. After the retaking of Jerusalem in 1099, the pilgrim barons met to decide upon who should lead the city. The Tafur disagreed with this because they were awaiting the second coming and believed that Jesus would come to lead them, 
instead of a governing party. The original choice would have been the Bishop Adamar, but he had died of illness at Antioch the year before. Instead, the crown was offered to Raymond of Toulouse. Raymond had age, wealth and experience on his side, but his closeness to Adamar and Emperor Alexius put him above the competition. However, Raymond knew he wasn't popular and his soldiers wanted to go home, so he refused the position. There were other candidates though. Bohemond wasn't available since he had crowned himself Prince of Antioch after leading the attack on the city. Tancred was seen as just a puppet of his uncle, so he was overlooked. Robert of Normandy had made it clear that he wanted to go home to Europe, and so he was out. Five days after the meeting, the crown was offered to Godfrey of Bouillon. Godfrey told the barons that he wouldn't wear a crown where Jesus had worn the crown of thorns, nor would he assume the title of king in the holy city of Christ. However, he would accept the same kingly powers under the title of Advocatus Sancti Sepulchre, or Defender of the Holy Sepulchre. Some people wanted Jerusalem to be a theocracy, ruled by a patriarch appointed by the Pope. However, within a year, Godfrey had died. The crown passed to his brother, Baldwin I, who wasn't worried about that and ruled over the Kingdom of Jerusalem. He renovated the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which was assumed to be in the same place as Solomon's Temple. The Dome of the Rock, which does stand in the place of the original temple, became a Christian church named the Templum Domini, or the Temple of the Lord. A cross was placed atop it, and it housed the Patriarch of Jerusalem. Later, the area the pilgrims captured was called Outremer, which is French for overseas. It stretched as far as Egypt and the Red Sea. The Kingdom of Jerusalem, residing in Outremer, corresponded with the kingdom of David and Solomon. This kingdom covered the current state of Israel, the east bank of the Jordan River, western Jordan, southern Lebanon, and southwestern Syria. The states of Antioch, Edessa, and Tripoli were dependent on the kingdom as well. The soldiers and rulers of Outremer were European and largely French. The commercial class of these people were Italian. The Westerners were just known as the Franks, and during the first decades of Outremer, they mingled with the indigenous people, adopting their dress and customs, and being tolerant of the marriage between Muslims and Christians. The relationship with Byzantium, however, was not so great. The pilgrims had taken back most of Asia Minor for them, but Antioch had been taken by Bohemond, who, as a Norman, had eyes on Constantinople. He wasn't the only one unprepared to share the land with Byzantium. This was compounded by a developing rift between Byzantium and the West. It was religious, political and economic, 
and upset Alexius enough that he didn't agree to help in the fight against the Muslims in Spain. Even the pilgrims coming to visit after retaking Jerusalem had a difficult time. They were still exposed to attack from brigands, Turkish forces in the north and Egyptian forces in the south. Even the Saracens, pagan warriors led by a man named Saladin, were attacking people on the fords of the river nearby San. During Easter 1019, a party of 700 pilgrims set out from Jerusalem to the River Jordan. On the way, they were attacked by a group of Egyptians from Ascalon. In the attack, 300 pilgrims were killed and another 60 were captured and sold as slaves. This attack and many others caused a need for some kind of protection. A group of nine knights including one from Champagne, called Hugh de Paines, had proposed to the Patriarch of Jerusalem and King Baldwin II, who had taken over from his cousin in 1118, that they form a lay community or become monastic in order to save their souls. Baldwin, knowing about the current dangers posed to those on pilgrimage, persuaded the knights to save their souls by protecting pilgrims on the road. The Easter massacre on the road to the River Jordan drove home this need, and on Christmas Day, 1119, Hugh and his companions went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre to take vows of chastity, poverty, and to protect the pilgrims on the road. The vows were taken in front of the Patriarch, and they called themselves the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ. The king and patriarch probably saw this as complimentary to the hospitallers, who had been working under the Pope since 600, providing care for the pilgrims arriving at Jerusalem. In 800, Charlemagne had enlarged the hospital that had been built to include a hostel and a library, but it was destroyed by the Fatimid Caliph Hakim in 1005. The hospital was rebuilt in 1170 and run by Benedictine monks. The building was dedicated to St John the Almsgiver, the 7th century patriarch of Alexandria. After the First Crusade, the hospital was released from the Benedictines and the Order of the Hospitallers of St John was recognised by the Pope in 1113, who ruled over them. They had been inundated with sick and injured pilgrims since then. The fellow soldiers were officially accepted in 1120 when the nine members were formally introduced to the spiritual leaders from Outrema. That same year, Falk V of Anjou visited Jerusalem. As he returned home, he granted the fellow soldiers an annual revenue which was followed by revenue from other French nobles and added to the allowance that the canons from the Holy Sepulchre were giving. It was a modest income, but individually the members of the order were poor, dressing in donated clothes at the time and had no uniform. The Templar seal depicts this, showing two knights sharing a single horse. They were given the Al-Aqsa Mosque, 
which had been previously renovated into a palace, but was no longer in use. The fellow soldiers used it as their headquarters, living there and using it to store arms, clothing and food. They also used the underground vault in the southeast of the Temple Mount as a stable. The mosque had been known as the Mosque of Solomon's Temple because it was believed to be there. And the order's name changed to the four nope. And the order's name changed to the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon, which was shortened down to Templars. In the autumn of 1127, Baldwin II sent emissaries west to solve some problems the Kingdom of Jerusalem was facing. Militarily, Jerusalem was weak, so they requested aid in that. But there was another problem. Baldwin had no male heir. He had four daughters and offered one of them to Falk V. Falk agreed, returning to Outremer and securing the succession as well as strengthening the kingdom's ties to the west. Baldwin also sent Hugh de Payne, the Grand Master of the Templars, to solicit donations and raise recruits. The monastery at Clairvaux had been notified of this and were told that they were seeking approval from the Pope. The abbot for the monastery had already informed the Pope of this, requesting fighting knights, not monks. Bernard of Clairvaux and Hugh de Payne were linked by their friendship with the Count of Champagne, who had joined the Templars in 1125. When Hugh landed in France in the autumn of 1127, land, horses, silver and armour were gifted to the Templars. The following summer, he was in England, where King Henry I donated gold and silver to the order, and he received even more across the border in Scotland. In the autumn, he sailed back over the Channel and was met, met by Godfrey of Saint-Omer, another Templar. In early 1129, the pair reached Troy, the capital of the Counts of Champagne. They met with Theobald of Champagne, who hosted a meeting of the church leaders, including Bernard of Clairvaux. Hugh explains the founding of the Templars and how they live, including their vows. He explained that they were under the jurisdiction of the Patriarch of Jerusalem, but each one listened to the Grand Master. This caused Bernard to write them a new set of 72 clauses, known as the Latin Rule. The Templars were now required to renounce their wills, hold worldly matters cheap, and not be afraid to fight, but always be prepared for death and the crown of salvation and eternal life. They were required to dress in white, symbolising their decision to leave their dark life behind them to enter a state of perpetual chastity. They had to keep their hair short, but were not permitted to shave. There were many more, but that gives you an idea of who the Templars became. They were regulated like monks, but combined knighthood with religion and were entitled to legal protection, land, buildings, serfs and tithes. This endorsement 
was confirmed by Pope Honorius II. This was largely through the efforts of Bernard, who now urged Hugh to write a defence of the Templars for distribution. This distribution, in praise of the new knighthood, projected the fighting as malicide, the killing of evil. The Templars were the protectors of the Holy Land, acting as pilgrim guides. Their proximity to the lands of Jesus meant they knew the spiritual meanings of these places and were fortified in their mission of defending the Holy Land. Hugh de Payne died in 1136 and was succeeded by Robert of Crayon. He consolidated the gains made at Troy and secured a lot of papal bulls, which were official decrees. In 1139, Pope Innocent II issued a bull that established the Templars as an independent and permanent order within the Catholic Church that answered to nobody but the Pope. They were also given their own priesthood that was answerable only to the Grand Master, separating them completely from the bishops of Outremer. They were exempt from tithes and were free to collect their own, as well as keeping spoils from battle. These privileges were extended in 1144, when Pope Celestine II issued two more bulls and a third in 1145 by Pope Eugenius III. These put the Templars beyond reproach and secured their future wealth and success. It was here that they gained their first uniform, a white tunic symbolising their readiness to suffer in defence of the Holy Land. It's strange though, there are hardly any records of them during their first three decades in Outremer after being founded in 1119. That's not the same for their involvement in the Iberian Peninsula. King Alfonso I of Aragon had reconquered large amounts of territories from the Muslims in Spain. When he died in 1134, he had no heir and willed his kingdom to the Templars, the Hospitallers and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in equal percentages. The will was contested, but a settlement was reached in 1143 which gave Templars six major castles in Aragon, a tenth of the royal revenue, and a fifth of all lands conquered from the Muslims in the future. This turned the Templars into a major force in the Reconquista against the forces of Islam. The Templars got there first, and then the Hospitallers followed in 1150. Both defended Catalonia and Aragon, but the Templars really shone in the Reconquista, being given lands by the kings of Castile and Leon, and helping to create an emerging country, Portugal. The Templars helped defeat the Muslims and create borders for the country at no cost. Instead, they were given control of the border castles. In 1148, back in Outremer, other things were happening. The Seljuk Turks were back and trying to reclaim their land. During the first half century of Outremer, the land had made peace, with Muslims and Christians making alliances against common enemies. However, 
the Seljuk Turks were still around and gathering power. The most important Seljuk was named Zengi, who was trying to take control of the area. He had already taken a lot of Muslim Syria and would have taken Damascus if it hadn't been for an alliance between its ruler and King Falk of Jerusalem. He did, however, manage to take Edessa in 1144, and that is looked at as the start of the Jihad that would drive the Franks from the east. The loss of Edessa began the Second Crusade, with two European kings leading it. In 1145, Pope Eugenius wrote to King Louis VII of France, asking him to undertake a new crusade. At Christmas, Louis summoned his barons, told them he was taking the cross, and asked them to do the same. The response was poor. Louis was young and was seen as impetuous and greedy. He had also angered the barons by seizing lands from the Counts of Champagne. The barons convened again at Easter, 1146, at Vézelay in Burgundy, where Bernard of Clairvaux was set to speak. With the knowledge that he would speak, aristocrats and admirers came from all over France, causing the need for the congregation to move out to a field rather than take place in the cathedral. Vézelay was an important place to launch the Second Crusade, because it supposedly housed the bones of Mary Magdalene. The claim was laid in the 1050s, and there seems to be no reason why she would have been there aside from the difficulty of taking a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. A fiction circulated that her bones had been in Provence, but had been moved to Vézelay to keep them safe from the threat of Saracens. Then another story said that she had escaped the Holy Land by sea, landing at Marseille, where she had made her way inland before dying. The bones were dug up by a monk from Vézelay and had been taken back to Burgundy. Bernard told the crowd that the fall of Edessa was a gift from God and that it had created an opportunity for men to save their souls. So many men came forward that they ran out of crosses and Bernard had to tear strips from his own habit. King Louis stepped up first and his barons followed suit. Many of them were the grandsons of the men who took the cross at the beginning of the First Crusade. Bernard took the large numbers as a good sign, travelling north to France and Flanders, then addressing a letter to England News also reached Germany, where it once again kicked off anti-Semitic attacks along the Rhine. Bernard moved quickly, travelling to Germany to condemn the attacks. He preached the crusade to King Conrad III of Germany, finally persuading him to take the cross himself at Christmas in 1146. The next year, Pope Eugenius gave his blessing to Alfonso VII of Castile, sending a crusader fleet from Northern Europe to Spain in the autumn to capture the Portuguese capital of Lisbon under the name of the Crusade. Through Bernard of Clairvaux, the Second Crusade had become an attack on both sides against the forces of Islam. 
The French Templars accompanied the Crusaders to the east. It's also likely that this is where the Pope gave the Templars permission to add the Red Cross onto their tunics as a symbol of their willingness to die in battle for God. The Pope also appointed the Templar treasurer to receive the tax imposed on all church goods to finance the crusade. This began a long time where the Paris Temple would serve as the treasury of France. Everard de Bar, the master of the temple in France, was sent to Constantinople ahead of the troops to negotiate with the Byzantine Emperor, Manuel I, for the passage of the French and German troops. They hadn't been invited this time, and the negotiations were met with scepticism, and the Byzantines were at war with the Norman king of Sicily, Roger II. To cover their backs while they did so, they had signed a treaty with the Seljuks. This was seen as treacherous, but in autumn 1147, King Conrad's army arrived at the city and was ferried across the river, followed by King Louis's army soon afterwards. Around a month later, a disaster struck. Conrad led his army directly north along the border of Seljuk territory. They were defeated at Drolaeum. The survivors, including Conrad, retreated to Nicaea and joined the French, who had taken the safer coastal route. Conrad fell ill at Ephesus, returning to Constantinople with his forces. The French marched eastward. In 1148, they were marching through the Cadmus Mountains when they were attacked by the Seljuks. The French knights' heavily armoured army was no match for them. King Louis surrendered his responsibilities to Everard de Bar, who divided the force among the Templars, whom the knights swore to obey. The army found its way to Italia, where Byzantine fleet they expected was too small to take everyone to the Holy Land. Only Louis and part of his army sailed. The rest had to march through Seljuk lands to get there, and most of them died along the way. When Louis landed in Antioch in the spring, he realised he needed more funding. He abandoned Edessa, instead travelling to Tripoli and then Jerusalem to fulfil his pilgrim's vow. He dispatched Everard to make more money, which he did. Despite heavy losses in their march, the forces that had marched through the Seljuk territory arrived in the Holy Land and were far from negligible. The survivors from Comrade's army sailed from Constantinople with Comrade as well. In early summer, the lords and the military leaders attended a council at Acre with Baldwin III, the 17-year-old king of Jerusalem, presiding over it. The Hospitallers and the Templars also attended. Zengi had died, but his son, Nur al-Din, was in control of Aleppo in North Syria. This was along the route to Edessa, and Raymond of Antioch wanted to move in that direction. Some spoke about Egypt, but the road where there was blocked by Ascalon, a fortified city in the hands of the Fatimids. The third possibility was Damascus, the only Muslim power in the region willing to ally with the Franks. 
This might have deterred those in Outremer, but it didn't matter to the men from the West. After a long discussion, they decided to concentrate on Damascus. They marched out from Galilee in the late summer. They camped in a well-supplied position with fresh water and orchards near the western walls so that they could prepare for the siege. However, the Damascenes hid in the orchards and repeatedly attacked the Crusaders. Louis and Conrad moved around to the eastern walls to deploy cavalry, but the walls were higher on this side and the siege dragged, causing the Crusaders to withdraw. Without succeeding or even fighting in a single battle, the Second Crusade came to an end. Six years later, Damascus fell to Nur al-Din, surrounding Outremer with a united Muslim force. Withdrawing from Damascus had caused a bitterness between Outremer and the West. Louis and Conrad never recovered Edessa, nor did they manage to offset the loss by taking Damascus or anywhere else, putting Outremer in danger. However, the Westerners didn't understand. Conrad and Louis were powerful kings, and Bernard of Clairvaux had preached the crusade. Some of the German people blamed the Franks, saying that they were in a league with Damascus. Others blamed the Templars for engineering a retreat, speaking of Templar greed and creating a huge bribe from Damascus. The French didn't share the sentiment, having been supported by the Templars during the crusade. The Second Crusade was a disaster, but the Templars still had power and continued the growth of this, but they had other threats to contend with. After the taking of Odessa and the taking of Damascus, Nur al-Din imposed Sunni Islam on the population of Syria, driving the Shia sects into remote regions. The Ismailis withdrew into the coastal mountains, the Jebel al-Syria, which was protected by Templar and Hospitaller strongholds. Here, they cemented themselves as a movement of murder, the assassins. They built strongholds such as Al-Alakya, Cadmus, Kalat, Al-Kaf and Masyaf, where the assassin's leader took up headquarters. The leader, the Sheikh Al-Jebel, the old man of the mountains, employed a strategy of assassination to influence and control people. They mostly chose the Sunni Muslims to do this, but they were also known to, an, to assassinate Christians who may threaten their independence. Marco Polo encountered a branch of them at Alamut in Persia and described their divine knowledge. He explained that they used drugs, including hashish, which is the root of assassin, to convince novices to become self-destructive for dying or self-sacrifices. They would enter a garden of delights where fountains would flow with milk, honey and wine and where the maidens of paradise would be available to them all the time. When they returned to their natural state, 
they would believe that they had actually visited paradise and were told that if they obeyed the assassin's imam, they could return forever. According to the Chronicles, the assassin's leader would demonstrate this obedience by getting the adepts to leap from precipices to their deaths. This willingness to die for the cause was a great weapon, sowing fear of the sect and weakening the resolve of their enemies by killing key figures. The assassins infiltrated the ranks of their enemies, winning their trust, then would kill their target with a knife. These were suicide attacks because they would always perish whilst carrying out their orders. The assassins took many lives, both Christian and Muslim, but the most famous attack was an attempt to kill Saladin in 1176. Saladin was the champion of the Sunni orthodoxy and the leader of the Muslim resurgence at the time. Having already overthrown the Fatimids in Egypt, he had turned his attention to the Crusaders and the assassins. He entered the Jebel al Saria to lay siege to Masyaf, but his soldiers reported strange goings-on, and he himself was plagued with nightmares. One night, he woke up to some hot cakes and a poisoned dagger with a threatening verse. Believing that the old man of the mountain had entered his tent, Saladin bolted. He sent a letter to the old man, asking for forgiveness and promised to leave before returning to Cairo. It just proves that the assassins were effective in their fear tactics, able to manipulate a situation to their will. The Templars happened to be an effective organisation against the assassins. They weren't intimidated by the death of one of their men, and the assassins themselves admitted to never killing a Grand Master because they knew one equally as good would be put in his place. Because of their hatred of the Sunni, the assassins often ended up in alliances with the Christians and were tolerated in Christian spaces and even by the Templars. The Templars actually threatened to go after the assassins after the murder of Raymond II of Tripoli in 1152. Nobody knows why they went after him, and the only possible explanation is that Raymond's wife had hired them. The assassins decided to pay an annual tribute as protection money to the Templars, because they shared a common enemy, and it was in their best interest to keep the peace. On one occasion, the Templars' distrust of the assassins led to them opposing King Almeric of Jerusalem, who had gone to speak to the old man of the mountain. In 1164, the old man renounced Islam, declaring that the resurrection had arrived. This revelation caused an upheaval in the Jebel al-Saria. In 1173, nine years later, Almeric tried to negotiate an alliance with the old man, with one of the conditions being that the assassins convert to Christianity. As the old man's envoy was returning to Masyaf from Jerusalem, they were ambushed and all of them were killed by Templar knights. 
Almeric had a difficult time convincing the next old man that the attacks weren't his fault and accused the Templars of treason and attempting to ruin the kingdom by destroying the chance of an advantageous alliance. It was implied that the murder had a financial motive or that the Templars felt justified because the assassins were infidels. By 1174, the chances of an alliance were over. Raymond III, Count of Tripoli, took over from Almeric and his father had been murdered by the assassins. The Holy Land had to make do with the Templars and their growing power. The power of the Templars grew considerably, but it wasn't all smooth sailing. After the Second Crusade, the Templars and Hospitallers became the only resistance to the Muslims. The Hospitallers had undergone some sort of transformation, also becoming knights, under the name of St John the Baptist. The two orders were given castles in remote, isolated places. This worked for them because they were monastic in nature. Each order levied taxes and received donations, making them both independently wealthy. And they even had their own fleets of ships and diplomatic services. Very quickly, the Crusader states sold or gave the frontier fortresses to the orders. By 1166, there were only three castles in the Kingdom of Jerusalem that the orders didn't control. During the 12th and 13th centuries, Languedoc in southern France was a place where both Christian orthodoxy and heresy flourished. The Arians were the leftovers of a 900-year-old heresy from Alexandria that undermined the divinity of Jesus. The Waldensians were a new movement that called for the distribution of wealth to the poor and rejected the authority of the clergy because anyone could preach the Bible. The big problem was the group known as the Manichaeans, or the Cathars. I briefly mentioned them back in episode 13. The Cathars can be traced back to the Gnostics, a sect of Christianity from the 2nd and 3rd centuries. They first appeared in France after the First Crusade. They couldn't accept the monotheistic nature of Christianity, believing that if there was only one God who was creator and that he was good, that there shouldn't be any suffering, illness or death in the world. Their beliefs suggested that there were two creators of the world. They were dualists, believing in a good and evil principle. One of the creators was said to have made the invisible and spiritual universe and the other created the material world. They believed that all matter was created by the devil, but they couldn't renounce the world, so they lived normally, renouncing all of the material world on their deathbeds. The Languedoc was a major source of Templar income and recruits. Some of the recruits were Cathars. The problem was the idea of duality. It was an unorthodox variety of Christianity and threatened to upend all of Christianity. This issue was so great that by 1200, 
Pope Innocent III was alarmed. He launched a crusade against them in 1209 and an inquisition was introduced. A siege was conducted at Montsegur in the Pyrenees, lasting until 1244. Around 200 of the Cathars refused to admit that they were wrong and were bound together on the stockades below the castle and burned to death. The Templars played no part in this crusade. Over in the east, King Baldwin III captured Ascalon in 1153, opening the corridor to Egypt for the Franks. This opportunity was taken when Baldwin died and was replaced by Amalric in 1162. He entered Egypt in 1164, 1167 and 1168 to prevent it from being captured by Nur al-Din. In 1164 and 1167, Amalric managed to get one of the viziers in Cairo to retreat and had Templars in his army. A Templar also took part in a mission to negotiate an alliance between Amalric and Shawar, another of the viziers. In 1168, Amalric marched into Egypt to annex it, but didn't have Templars with him. The Fatimids withdrew within the walls of Cairo and burned the suburbs to the ground before calling on Nur al-Din for support. Amalric was forced to withdraw whilst Nur al-Din's general, Shirka, entered Cairo and decapitated Shawar, installing himself as vizier. He died in 1169 and was succeeded by his nephew, Salah al-Din, better known as Saladin. Nur al-Din's capture of Egypt was a massive problem for the Franks. Nobody knows why the Templars refused to help Amalric's invasion in 1168. William of Tyre, who had been commissioned by Amalric to write his history of the Kingdom of Jerusalem and often condemned the Templars, said that the Templars were right to refuse because it would break the treaty that they had made with Shawar the year before. The Templars were also connected financially to Egypt through their contracts with the Muslims and the Italian merchants who traded with Egypt. The losses they had suffered could also have had an effect on their judgment. This, compounded with the attacks on the assassins, led to criticisms of the Templars who were believed to be advancing their own interests. Saladin, who was now in power in Egypt, watched the Christians deal with the consequences of their failure and declared himself Sultan. He rushed to seize Damascus setting off in autumn 1177. The Templars rallied to stop him, attempting to defend Gaza. However, Saladin bypassed them by going through Ascalon. Baldwin IV, Amalric's leprous son, rushed to block him, bringing the true cross with him. Baldwin managed to get inside the walls of Ascalon before Saladin arrived. Saladin left a small siege party and marched towards Jerusalem now that it was undefended. 
Baldwin sent a message to the Templars, asking them to join him. When they got close, Baldwin left the city and gave chase to Saladin along the coast before marching inland. The Templar army was much smaller than Saladin's, but they managed to defeat him, with Saladin escaping back to Egypt. Once back, he lied, telling everyone that the Christian forces had lost the battle. Baldwin reinforced his defences along the Syrian frontier. Saladin kept up the attacks on Damascus, laying siege to a castle on the River Jordan in 1179 and burning it to the ground. In spring 1180, Baldwin and Saladin entered a two-year truce. Saladin planned to use the time to pursue a siege of Aleppo, and Baldwin got time to recover from an extreme drought. It also allowed Christian and Muslim traders to travel freely through both territories. The truce was broken a year later when Reynald of Chatillon attacked some Muslim caravans on their way to Medina and Mecca. Saladin demanded compensation from Baldwin, but Reynald launched another attack, sending a fleet into the Gulf of Aqaba and raided Egyptian and Arabian ports until Saladin stepped in to stop it. In spring 1182, Saladin launched another invasion. The forces of Outremer managed to repel him and both sides claimed a victory. In summer 1183, Saladin managed to capture Aleppo and with it gained control of Syria. Saladin now turned his attention on a jihad against the Christians. Outremer was surrounded by Muslims and the Templar and Hospitaller Grandmasters sought help from the West in 1184 with Heraclius. The kings of France, England and the Holy Roman Emperor received them well. Plans were discussed for another crusade, but none of them could afford to send anybody at that time. Instead, they put money towards it, but it wasn't a lot. There was a quick succession of leadership too. The Grand Master died in Verona and was replaced by Gerard of Ridefoot. Baldwin IV died in 1185 and his son Baldwin V, a child king, died in 1186. Raymond III of Tripoli was meant to remain as regent until a new king could be put in place, but Baldwin V's mother claimed the throne for herself, causing a coup in which Raymond had no choice but to step down. He entered a secret treaty with Saladin, protecting Tripoli and Galilee from Saladin's attacks. Saladin promised to aid in the overthrowing of Sibylla, the queen, as well. Saladin asked permission to send men through Galilee, and Raymond agreed, under the condition that they were gone within the day and harmed nobody. He told the people of Galilee to stay indoors to protect themselves. A man named Balian arrived to a Templar castle that morning, but having heard nothing about it, he found it empty. He waited for a couple of hours, but then began to set out for Tiberius under the assumption that they had gone ahead of him. 
he was stopped by a bleeding Templar, shouting of a great disaster. Gerard of Ryefort had heard the message from Raymond and summoned the Templars from the surrounding area. They rode through Nazareth and spotted a large enemy group at the Springs of Crescent. The Hospitaller Grandmaster suggested a retreat, but Gerard insisted on an attack. His contingent of 130 knights rode down the hill and almost all of them were killed. Gerard and two other knights managed to escape. Saladin's men were out of Galilee by nightfall without harming a town or village. However, the heads of the Templars were on the lances of the Muslim force. Raymond broke his treaty and rode to Jerusalem in shame making peace with Sibylla and her husband, Guy of Lusignan. However, Saladin was gathering a great army to attack. Guy called every able man to Acre, emptying cities and castles of all fighting men. They marched to meet Saladin's army. They found a good place to wait for Saladin to get to them, but Raymond's wife, Countess of Tripoli, sent a message to say that she was holding Tiberius from an attack by Saladin. Guy held a meeting and many wanted to go and help the Countess, but Raymond said it was a fool's errand. They had everything they needed where they were. It was decided they would stay where they were. That night, Gerard visited Guy and told him that to abandon Tiberius would be a stain on his honour and he overturned the decision. The army marched out, but Saladin set up ambushes and hunkered down in the village of Hattin. Raymond said the hill above Hattin was a good place to camp, but there was no water. Saladin attacked the next morning. The Templars protected Guy and the Bishop of Acre, who held the true cross and were surrounded. Raymond and Balian charged the enemy line, which opened and let them through. Saladin's forces overwhelmed the rest of the Christians, and the True Cross fell into Muslim hands. Saladin spared Guy and his barons, and offered Guy some water, a common gesture to mean his life was spared. He didn't like Reynald, though, who had attacked him during the truce. He commanded Reynald to convert to Islam or face death, and Reynald responded by commanding Saladin convert to Christianity. Saladin beheaded him. After the Battle of Hattin, which had emptied the Holy Land of capable soldiers, Saladin's path was clear. He marched onwards, taking city after city, using Gerard to force the Templars to surrender. In early autumn 1187, Saladin reached Jerusalem. He asked about the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the quickest route to it. Then he sent men to destroy the same part of the wall that Godfrey of Bouillon had done 80 years prior. He broke the wall and eventually the Patriarch and Balian decided to talk terms. Saladin was uncompromising though saying that Jerusalem had to be cleansed with Christian blood. 
he consented to the safety of the Christians if they paid a hefty sum. Valiant paid for the poorest people, allowing them to leave. The West launched the Third Crusade in 1190. Philip II of France and Richard I of England, or Richard the Lionheart, recaptured Acre in 1191. And Richard managed to capture Jaffa and Ascalon after defeating Saladin at Arsuf. He marched close to Jerusalem, but was warned that he had to take the hinterlands before Jerusalem, else he couldn't hold it. They came to an agreement with Saladin, allowing free movement in exchange for the destruction of the walls at Ascalon. Outremer's capital became Acre, where the Templars now made their headquarters. Richard left the Holy Land in 1192, and Saladin died the next year. After his death, Saladin's empire fell apart. Skirmishes still happened between Outremer and the Muslims, but there were more truces. The Fourth Crusade launched in an attempt to capture Jerusalem, but was diverted through Constantinople, which was sacked in 1204, and replaced the current leaders with Latin Christians until 1261. In 1217, the Fifth Crusade launched, attacking Egypt with the Templars. In 1219, they captured the port of Damietta. This unnerved the Sultan of Egypt, who offered to trade it for Jerusalem. They didn't do it, opting to continue their campaign. While advancing up the Nile, the Sultan opened the sluice gates of the irrigation canals and flooded the army into submission. In 1221, they evacuated to Acre after giving up Damietta. In 1228, Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II arrived in Acre. He had been excommunicated twice, once for failing in his crusading vow and the second time for attempting an unauthorised crusade. Frederick had secretly been in negotiations with the Sultan of Egypt, but the Sultan had changed his mind. Frederick led his army south towards Egypt, scaring the Sultan. He quickly agreed to a 10-year truce and the surrender of Jerusalem. In spring 1229, Frederick was crowned King of Jerusalem. Fearing that the Templars might make an attempt on his life, he left after two days. He returned to Sicily, freed the Muslim slaves and imprisoned the Templars there. He was excommunicated for a third time. In 1244, faction wars in Egypt came to a head and an alliance was formed to remove the leader from Cairo, Al-Salih. He didn't have a regular army, so brought in slave troops known as Mamluks. They rode into Syria, but were deterred by the walls of Damascus, so changed course and rode into Galilee and took Tiberias. They then went on to massacre anyone outside the citadel of Jerusalem. The defenders emerged later and only 300 survived the flight to the coast. The Mamluks burned the churches in the city and left Jerusalem smoking.
Later that year, a Christian Muslim army faced off against the Egyptian army at Laforbi. They fought bravely, but were completely destroyed. Relief came in the form of the Seventh Crusade, led by Louis IX of France. He landed at Damietta in 1249 to overturn the regime in Cairo. Al Saleh died later that year and his wife took over, pretending to be him. In 1250, the French advanced down the Nile towards Cairo, but suffered heavy losses. The Crusaders suffered from scurvy and plague, eventually retreating only to be captured by the Mamelukes. King Louis was released after a heavy ransom was paid. The Templars refused to contribute. Al Salih's wife declared herself Sultan, only to be killed by the Mamelukes, who threw her body over the citadel walls of Cairo, then declared themselves the masters of Egypt. The Mamelukes continued their campaign, taking the fortifications of the Hospitallers and Templars. The French had taken refuge in Acre, led by Charles of Anjou, King of Sicily. He had been trying to build a Sicilian empire, but had been forced to flee the land by the Vespers, a rebel group. Charles's ambition was keeping the Mamelukes in check, but his death in 1285 removed their hesitation. They moved swiftly, taking castles from the Hospitallers and the city of Latakia. In 1289, they took Tripoli, killing anyone who didn't escape by ship. In 1290, they set a course for Acre, converging with armies from Syria and Egypt in 1291. During the spring, the Mamelukes were ambushed at night by the Templars, who got caught in the tent ropes and fell back. Six weeks later, part of Acre was taken by them. The Grand Master of the Templars was mortally wounded. The Mamelukes stormed the city, killing everyone in sight. Anyone who hid indoors was captured and sold as a slave. They took everything but the Templar fortress that sat near the sea. The Templars held out there for a short while before agreeing to surrender as long as people were given safe passage. However, the Mamelukes attacked the women and children upon entering the fortress, causing more fighting. The fortress fell three days later after the treasures inside were sent away under the cover of night. The Mamelukes had Acre destroyed in the aftermath. After the fall of Acre, only two cities stayed in Christian hands. As the Mamelukes began to gather to take them, the Templars fled, leaving the East behind. The flight of the Templars didn't end the dream of recovering the Holy Land. Jacques de Molay, the new Grand Master, had begun to plan a counterattack against the Mamelukes. They had set up a new headquarters in Cyprus and still held an island off the coast of Syria. The Crusaders were still fighting the Mamelukes in the Holy Land, with the Shia Muslims also fighting them from the north. The Christians were still living in Lebanon, Palestine 
and Syria, but their numbers were greatly diminished. Many of them converted to Islam to save them from the Mamluks. It was a difficult time in the Kingdom of Jerusalem for everyone. Not only were the Mamluks a constant threat, but the Mongols had been attacking to extend their reach for some time. The Mamluks had already stopped them once before, but they weren't done trying to take territory. The Mongols had sent emissaries to the Council of Lyons in 1274, giving the Christians hope that they may convert. They advanced into northern Syria in 1281 and 1299, and when another crusade began in 1300, the Mongols offered them the Holy Land if they helped to defeat the Mamluks. In the summer, the Templars, Hospitallers and the King of Cyprus launched attacks on several cities in the land. These were preliminary attacks as part of a plan to make a joint attack with the Mongols. The Templars moved into Ruat, an island near Tortosa, and Athlit, the last Templar stronghold that had been abandoned. They made further raids on Tortosa in the anticipation that the Mongols would come to help, but the Crusaders ended up withdrawing to Cyprus before they arrived in 1301. The Templars returned to Ruad and established a large force on the island, rebuilding its defences. It's possible that they were awaiting the return of the Mongols, but instead had isolated themselves on a small island, which the Mamluks attacked in 1302. The Templars lost and were either slaughtered or sold into slavery. In 1305, a new Pope was put in place. After pressure from the French King, Philip IV, the Cardinals elected Clement V, a French Pope. He never set foot in Italy, choosing to stay in France and deciding to set up court in Avignon. At the time, Provence, where Avignon is, was outside of the French King's jurisdiction. Clement packed the Cardinals with Frenchmen, ensuring that the next six Popes were French. He was not a pawn of Philip, and attempted to get Philip to cooperate with the papacy by having a good relationship with him rather than using force. He wanted to launch yet another crusade and convinced Philip to take the cross in 1305. However, Philip wanted to conquer Byzantium and establish himself as the emperor there. In 1307, Clement met with the Templar and Hospitaller Grand Masters where they submitted views on the plans for the crusade and the unification of the orders. The Hospitaller Grand Master wanted to send a small expedition to the east before launching a full attack. Jacques de Molay, the Templar Grand Master, disagreed, saying that they had to launch a full attack from the start. The Templar idea was rejected in favour of the Hospitallers who had set up a base on the island of Rhodes and the Templars were left in a kind of limbo. Jacques de Molay travelled to Paris in 1307 where he walked as a pallbearer in the funeral of Philip IV's sister, Catherine of Courtenay. Other Templar leaders were there too. 
The next morning, Friday, October 13th, 1307, Jacques de Molay was arrested by the King's men. The order had been circulated the month before and called for the arrest of every Templar in Paris. Around 2,000 men were arrested simultaneously. A small number managed to escape, but several were apprehended later, even after disguising themselves. The Templars were charged with heresy. It was said that during their initiation, they were required to deny Christ, spit on the cross, and kiss their initiator in intimate places. It was also said that they could indulge in sexual acts with one another if it was requested, and they wore small belts consecrated by touching a strange idol with a bearded human head called Baphomet. The arrests, although authorised by a papal inquisitor in France, were carried out by the King of France, which was unheard of. Usually, the church would make the arrests and hold the trial. The Templars had worked directly for the Pope for 200 years, but were suddenly being arrested by someone who wasn't the Pope. It was a loophole. The Pope had granted powers onto the French Inquisitor during the eradication of the Cathars, but had never taken them away. It meant that the Templars were vulnerable to the charge of heresy, and Philip found a way to use that. He used his lawyers to gather information about the Templars and took this information out of context to present them as crimes against Christianity. The official charges were holding reception ceremonies in secret at night, having initiates deny Christ, spitting, urinating or trampling on the cross or images of Christ, exchanging kisses with the official on the mouth, navel, base of the spine, or sometimes the buttocks or penis. This also involved agreeing to submit to homosexual acts as required within the order. Not believing in the sacraments and not consecrating the host. Worshipping an idol named Baphomet. Grand masters absolving others of sin, even though they weren't ordained failing to make charitable gifts as they were meant to, nor practicing hospitality. There's a possibility that Philip believed his accusations. At the time, people had the belief that the devil was trying to spread corruption through, throughout Christendom. Philip had therefore given himself the role as the sacred king to eradicate the threat of Templar's heresy created. The issue was that there was no evidence of their threat to the king. They were unaligned with a faction and were mostly unarmed. They did have the protection of the Pope though and were almost untouchable, which threatened Philip's notions of an absolute sovereignty. His most powerful motive was the treasure though. Philip had stolen from the Italian bankers and the Jews already debased the currency and had been taxing the clergy. He had been warring with Flanders and England, which was an expensive endeavour, and he also inherited debts from the previous king, 
from the wars that he had undertaken. The Templars were a tempting target because they had physical treasure. The Hospitaller's money was all in land, but the Templars had actual liquid wealth. Many observers of these events thought that money was the main motive for the attack. The Templars were threatened with torture, which was enough for those who weren't battle-hardened. They confessed easily. However, the Knights were prepared, being trained for the idea that they may be thrown in a prison somewhere during the wars in Outremmer. It didn't matter though. Lots of them confessed. The torture was brutal, being chained up and fed little, or being tied to the rack and stretched until their limbs dislocated, or being suspended over a fire with their feet covered in fat. Philip's men were brutal in their quest to get the Templars to confess, and after the confessions were secured six days after the arrests, inquisitorial hearings took place in Paris. Jacques de Molay gave testimony, and his confession was recorded and sent to the Pope as proof of heresy less than two weeks after the arrests were made. Clement V had been stunned to hear of the arrests, and he immediately called for a meeting with his cardinals. He didn't excommunicate Philip, but issued a bull. It said that Philip had acted unlawfully, but could make up for it by handing his prisoners and their treasure over to the church. He sent two cardinals to Paris, but they were told that they couldn't see the prisoners and that the king wasn't there. The cardinals returned to the Pope with the news causing problems inside the papacy. Cardinals threatened to quit if they found that Clement was a pawn of the king. Clement issued another bull, asking for the arrest of all Templars and their lands across all of Christendom. He could force Philip to surrender the Templars, but risk a coup, or he could get the others to follow suit by ordering the arrest under the name of the church. It was a way around both of the issues that he faced. He was making it clear that the matter was no longer in Philip's hands. He pretended the incident with the cardinals in Paris had never happened and sent more cardinals to Paris in the winter. They had been given the power to excommunicate Philip on the spot if he refused to cooperate. Philip agreed. The Cardinals ended up meeting with Jacques de Molay and the other leading Templars, who recanted their confessions, saying that they had confessed under heavy torture. That was a risky move, because relapsed heretics would be handed to the secular authorities and burned at the stake. Their recanting was a sign that the Templar leaders believed the decision would be overturned. Philip still refused to turn the Templars over. Clement responded by shutting down the Inquisition, which was responded to with a campaign of slander, libel and physical intimidation towards the Pope. Clement stood his ground and met with King Philip in the spring. They agreed that the Pope would set up an inquiry and provincial councils would set up an inquiry. 
Philip sent 72 Templars to Clement, including the Grand Master. However, they never reached their destination. The prisoners got to Shinon Castle and remained there. The Pope believed it was a deception, but got on with examining the Templars that had actually gotten to him. On July 2nd, he absolved the Templars. The hearings had been accounted, but these accounts were mislaid in the Vatican archives. They were rediscovered in 2001, removing some of the theories surrounding the hearings. Clement had heard what the Templars had to say and found that with the exception of one of the charges, they were following their Christian doctrines. The Templars explained that they denied and spat on the cross in their initiations, but had confessed to a priest immediately afterwards. Clement believed this to be too confused and said that the Templars needed reform, but that was all. He said that they were not heretics, but were also not innocent, having denied Christ even as a pretense. The Templars that he saw were absolved, but Clement couldn't absolve the leaders at Shinon without seeing them. In the summer, Clement absolved the leaders and the report had been lost until recently. It showed that the king had been holding these men prisoners. The cardinals had gone to Shinon to conduct the hearings. When they returned to the Pope, telling him that the charges of sodomy and blasphemy were unfounded and were a misunderstanding of their practices that had origin in their fights against the Muslims. The initiation practices were simulations of the kind of torture that they may face if they were captured. Clement absolved them too and publicly. He was trying to save the order with reform being his objective but also trying to avoid confrontation with the church and with Philip. By 1310, the Templars had rallied to Avignon for the inquiry. Philip was worried about this and took action, sending the Archbishop of Sens, who was loyal to him, to reopen his inquiry. He found 54 Templars to be reformed heretics and handed them over to the secular authorities. On May 12, 1310, these 54 men were burned at the stake in a field outside of Paris. Some of the Templars went quiet after that, but others were not intimidated. During his inquiry, Clement had to lock up some of the Templars on threat of excommunication due to them storming the council. He also silenced the council after Philip and an armed force appeared at Vienne to disrupt the council. With Philip at his side, Clement announced the suppression of the Templars. He gave their property to the Hospitallers and Philip extracted a large sum from the Hospitallers as compensation for the costs incurred in the Templar trials. The Templars themselves were handed over to the secular authorities for punishment. Some were subjected to penances, including lengthy prison sentences. Others, who had not confessed 
or were not important were sent to monasteries. However, Jacques de Molay and the other leaders had to wait until March 1314 for their punishment. They were sentenced to life in prison until they died in one way or another. Jacques de Molay and the master of Normandy, Geoffrey of Charny, denied everything once again. This denial had effectively put their lives in the hands of God. The king ordered them to be condemned as relapsed heretics and the same night they were taken to the Isle de Javio on the Seine and bound to the stake. The last of the Templars died that night, showing courage to the end. Some of the religious orders survived the inquiries of Philip IV of France. He had been threatening massive reform to the hospitalers, but both he and Clement V died within a year of the destruction of the Templars, which may have saved them. No accusations had been made against them, but the accusations made against the Templars had tarnished their reputation. Even Clement VI believed that the Hospitallers had nothing to give to help the church. The Hospitallers managed to hold on to Rhodes until the Ottoman Turks took it in 1522, when they retreated to Malta until that was besieged in 1565. Six years later, Hospitaller ships took part in an armada that defeated an Ottoman fleet off the coast of Greece. This battle put into reverse the Muslim aggression that had begun in the Holy Land 900 years prior. Stuck on Malta, the order lost power. In 1792, the French National Assembly confiscated its estates, and in 1798, they put up no resistance when Napoleon went to Malta to expel them. They dispersed across Europe, reforming in Russia with the Tsar as the Grand Master, and in the 1820s, the most venerable order of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem was founded to liberate Greece from Ottoman rule. It soon became a pacifist movement devoted to charitable works, as offshoots were in Britain, Germany and Italy. The Order of Malta in Italy has observer status at the UN and has recently returned to Malta. The British branch became St John's Ambulance Brigade in 1887 and operates in the UK, the Commonwealth and the United States with its headquarters in London. In England, Edward II resisted Philip's and Clement's inquisition, stating that it had no standing in English common law. Each Templar was allowed to make a public statement and each was offered reconciliation with the church and was sent to live peacefully at a monastery. Edward refused to hand the Templar properties to the church because they had been donated by the nobility and should return to them. The Hospitallers did receive some of the possessions, but the king distributed it as he saw fit. 
there's still a lot of Templar history surviving in England today. Scotland was caught in its own struggles when the Templars fell. They were in the midst of a civil war and Edward II was trying to take Scotland for himself. The Templars went unpunished for that reason, although there are some who believe that the Templars helped Scotland to win its independence. Spain had always welcomed the Templars due to their aid in the retaking of Iberia. The Templars put on trial in Aragon were found innocent by King Jamie II. He couldn't go against the papal bull to suppress the order, but had no intentions of allowing their properties to pass to the Hospitallers. After the Pope gave his blessing, the Order of Montessa was founded in 1317. It acquired the Templar assets and was charged with the defence of the frontier. They aided in the removal of the last Muslim invaders in 1492 when they took Granada and declined afterwards. King Philip II joined the office of Grand Master in 1587. Portugal owed its country to the Templars. In 1319, King Deniz reordered the Templars as the Order of Christ. After four years of negotiations, they were allowed to inherit the Templar assets. In 1357, the order transferred from the Algarve to Tamar. Kings of Portugal installed princes or other favourites as Grand Master of the Order. Prince Henry the Navigator was the most notable. Appointed in 1418, he established a navigator school at Sagres, which created the first wave of exploratory voyages down the coast of Africa, around the Cape of Hope, and eventually Asia. The Order of Christ became secular in 1789 and lost everything in 1834 under an anti-church government. It ended up being re-established though and survives as an Order of Merit for outstanding service to Portugal. There is still a belief that the Templars did more after their fall, even with their orders surviving in some places. The first time the Templars returned in modern times was in Sir Walter Scott's book, Ivanhoe, published in 1819. In it, he portrayed the Templars as villainous. He returned to them in 1825 with the talisman because Richard the Lionheart and the Templars fascinated him. The talisman was so successful that Herman Melville parodied it in Taipei in 1846 and extended it into the Paradise of Bachelors in 1855, turning the Templars into a tainted order full of hypocrites. They disappeared from literature for a while, returning in the 1950s with Maurice Druon's series of seven novels, The Accursed Kings. They start with Jacques de Molay's death and continue to detail a supposed curse the Templars placed on France. 
These novels were adapted into a miniseries in France in the 1970s. In 1972, Ishmael Reed wrote about Hinkle von Hampton, a fictional Templar, in his satirical book Mumbo Jumbo. Pierre Barbet also wrote Baphomet's Meteor, a science fiction take on the Templars that involved aliens. William Watson also wrote The Last of the Templars in 1979, providing a historical account of the events leading up to the suppression of the Order. In the 1990s, Jan Giu wrote the Crusades trilogy. Set in the 12th century, it follows a Swedish knight as he learns acceptance. There's an appearance of Saladin and the story blends facts, legends and fiction. The most famous of the Templar literature though is The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. He took inspiration from the 1982 The Holy Blood and The Holy Grail. I first mentioned it in episode 15 when I first talked about pseudo-history. Dan Brown's book delves into the conspiracies of the Templars and extends them to involve the Priory of Sion, who founded the Templars around a fertility goddess. The Priory of Sion was created by Pierre Plantard in 1956 as part of his forgeries. He even admitted that they were fake eventually, but some people still believe in it. Dan Brown's novel attributes the end of the Templars to Clement V and not Philip IV, using the Holy Grail as a catalyst for this. He even said that the ashes of Jacques de Molay were thrown in the Tiber. The Tiber is a river in Italy, a country which Clement V never visited. In film, the Templars didn't appear until 1971, as zombies from the Knights of the East in the film Tombs of the Blind Dead. It spawned a quadrilogy with Return of the Blind Dead, The Ghost Galleon, and Night of the Seagulls. Indiana Jones went on the hunt for Templar relics in the 80s. Raiders of the Lost Ark saw Jones looking for the Ark of the Covenant, trying to get to it before the Nazis could. In the film, the Ark was meant to make armies invincible, which is why the Ark is important to the Nazis. The plot sees Jones looking for the Ark in Egypt, where it had been sealed into a pyramid. The Nazis get hold of it first and open it. The idea that touching the Ark was deadly was used in the film, with the Ark killing anyone who looked inside of it. Jones returned to Templar relics in the third film, The Last Crusade. The Nazis are back, this time looking for the Holy Grail. Jones meets an order called the Knights of the Cruciform Sword, an allusion to the Templars. Nicolas Cage and National Treasure also allude to the Templars, using one of the conspiracies in the next section. He and his family are on the search for a lost Templar treasure, following a map drawn on the back of the Declaration of Independence in invisible ink. 
It's weird though, because the clues are unnecessarily complex, considering the map is hidden. And there is absolutely no reason for the treasure to be in America at all. It does pick up on a symbolism in many conspiracy theories, like the pyramids and the all-seeing eye on US dollar bills. My favourite film on this list marries the Templars to creatures. In Brotherhood of the Wolf, Templars are sent to France to scare Louis XV. To do this, they released a beast in the quiet village of Gévaudan, causing it to feast on the women and children. The beast of Gévaudan is one of the creatures I want to look at in the future, and it seems perfect that there is a film that involves the Templars and that beast in the same space. Kingdom of Heaven was politically charged when it came out in 2005. The war in Iraq was ongoing, and the film portrayed the events of the Crusades in a way that it hadn't been before. The film flips the script, and the Christians of the West weren't the good guys that they had always been in these stories. The idea that the Templars weren't so good may have been influenced by Sir Walter Scott and are portrayed as war-crazed. The film's message seems to be that religion, maybe specifically Christianity, is bad, and that the only good ones in the film are agnostics and liberals. Historically, the only things that are untouched are the existence of Saladin and the fact that he took Jerusalem. I mentioned before that The Accursed Kings was adapted for TV in France, but it's not the only TV shows that they've appeared in. It was remade in 2005 to some success as well. Edge of Darkness from 1985 suggested that the protagonists had been a Templar and a Teutonic Knight, a German variant, in past lives. In 2000, the show Relic Hunter aired an episode called The Last Night, where Sidney Fox, portrayed by Tia Carrera, investigates a medallion that may have belonged to Jacques de Molay, and they also search for his invincible sword. They find that the sword is not magical at all, and even get told by a French informant that the Templars were the rock stars of their time. Speaking of rock stars, the Templars show up in music as well. Wagner wrote the opera Parsifal in 1882, but never specifically mentioned the Templars. He did say that their costumes should resemble those worn by the knights, which alludes to the order. Several other classical composers have also written pieces inspired by Sir Walter Scott's books. The Blind Dead movies inspired a punk band called The Templars, forming in 1991 and releasing an album in 1994. Their music almost exclusively relates to the history of The Templars. Finally, there are video games that involve The Templars too. Medieval Total War allows players to actually play as the Templars in a historical context. But I know we all thought of one game when I mentioned video games. 
Assassin's Creed. Although the assassins were a real order, they were realistically just a drop in the history of the Templars. I added them in on purpose. You can't talk about the Templars without bringing up the Assassin's Creed games and the villains that they're portrayed as, looking for fictional treasure called the Pieces of Eden. The Assassins are up against them, trying to stop them from achieving their evil goals. These portrayals bring into the forefront a lot of theories and ideas about the Templars that people do believe to be true. But what if there's a historical basis to them? One of the most prevalent theories about what the Templars really did involves another artefact of great import, the Holy Grail. I'm about to put that theory to rest. First mentioned in the 12th century, it was a fictitious relic in Percival, the story of the Grail. The story was unfinished. It was rewritten and finished by Wolfram von Eschenbach and renamed Parsival. In this, the Templars were the guardians of the Grail. It wasn't a religious artifact, and it wasn't even a chalice in the beginning. It was a growl, a serving tray, that seemed to give off its own bright light. The author of Percival knew what it was, but the story never got to explaining what exactly it was. We don't know if it was allegorical or not, nor do we know if that allegory was religious in nature. In the 800 years since then, the idea of the Grail has been taken and changed. A chalice that Jesus drank from during the Last Supper, a cup that was used to catch the blood of Jesus while he was being crucified, Mary Magdalene herself, and even the children of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. It's been written about in books and shown in films, but nobody has any idea what the Grail is or what it can even do. The Grail isn't even the only conspiracy that the Templars are part of though. There are a few more at least. Templar conspiracies range from mundane to a little bonkers, even by the standards of this podcast, which has looked at some pretty crazy stuff over the course of the year. Let's have a look at some of those theories. In 1487, the Malleus Maleficarum was published. It was a handbook for identifying and punishing witches. The fear of witches was an epidemic and a single remark in a book by Henry Cornelius Agrippa associated the Templars with witchcraft. The book spoke of spirits and demons and how they were attracted to bad and profane arts. Agrippa linked the Gnostics to this and the Templars and their perceived heresy, raising them from obscurity and into a space that linked them with occult practices alongside the witches being persecuted. In 
This is exactly where the idea that Templars, and by extension the Freemasons, dally in the occult came from. Speaking of the Freemasons, they're one of the largest conspiracies attached to the Templars. Masons were freelancers who worked where they could. They formed themselves into an association in Scotland and England, and the elite Masons were called Freestone Masons, or Freemasons for short. As they travelled, they would stay in lodges, and after the Reformation in the 16th century, one of the things that they did at these lodges was read the Bible. They depended on exclusivity, which was made by developing rituals and signs supposedly passed down from ancient times in order to enter meetings. This links back to a man named Hiram Abiff, who knew the secret of Solomon's temple. He was kidnapped and threatened with death to reveal the master's secret, but he refused and was killed. Solomon found out and wondered what the secret was, sending men to find the body and the secret. He told them that if they couldn't find the secret, the first thing that they saw of Hiram's body was the secret. They found Hiram and Biff's coffin and the first thing they saw was his hand. The Freemasons had developed a handshake based on this secret and a ritual as they advanced through the ranks. A third degree Freemason must agree to undergo the sufferings of Hiram Abiff if they ever reveal the secrets of the Order. The Freemasons are a Christian organisation, yes, but they aren't an offshoot of the Templars, nor are they related to them in any way. Some people believe that Jacques de Molay cursed France in his final moments. There was only one eyewitness account of the burning of Jacques that says that he died calmly. There are no accounts of a curse, and yet people have said that he used his last moments to cry for vengeance, calling for the Pope and the King to join him in tribunal after a year and a day. Sure enough, a few weeks later, Clement V died, and Philip IV followed after later that year. The curse links with the supposed survival of the Templar Order. The alleged curse of Jacques de Molay is the link to this. The curse brought into the forefront a sense of prophecy. The story of Jacques' curse has been remembered and is believed to have brought ruin to France. The death of the king and the pope were just the beginning. The theory goes that a secret sect of Templars remained and plotted to overthrow the French monarchy. The conspiracy of the Templars was run through the Freemasons. According to Charles de Gassicourt, an author, someone was at the beheading of Louis XVI who shouted, Jacques de Molay, you are avenged. This man may have been a Freemason or even a Templar apparently. A few years after Gazacor's report, Abbe Augustin Baruel published his own account 
suggesting the same thing. Later, he added Jews into the conspiracy, suggesting that they were behind the Templar and Freemason conspiracy. They had been the ultimate manipulators to these events, something believed to have contributed to the Holocaust. Barul had published his accounts from England since he had been exiled from revolutionary France. These accounts caused concern for the English, who were told by Barul that the deceit of the French Freemasons didn't extend to the English lodges. As I said before though, there aren't any actual reports of Jacques de Molay's curse. It just got added to the story at a later date. Returning to Scotland, the Knights Templar seem to have survived. Although the Freemasons deny having associations and ties to the Templars, the Order of the Knights Templar published a notice in Scotland in 1843. The notice said that it was agreed that the Templars joined Robert the Bruce in the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314, a battle that ensured the Scottish independence from Edward II. It says that after the suppression of the Knights Templar in France, the Scottish Templars gave their support to Robert the Bruce, and a troop of them charged at a decisive moment, winning the battle. This charge was received with gratitude, and Robert the Bruce assimilated the Templars into the new Freemason order. As with the curse of Jacques de Molay, there aren't any records of this, and it appears to have only shown up during the 19th century. Robert Cooper, a Freemason and curator at the Grand Lodge in Edinburgh, Scotland, explained in his book, The Rosslyn Hoax, that each branch of Freemasonry has a storied past that underpins that particular branch of the Masonic system. Each one of them was manufactured to be suitable as an allegory and were not meant to be taken as a literal truth. One theory suggests that the Templars were the first to discover America. Roslyn Chapel in Scotland is supposed to hold the key to this in its carvings. Among those carvings, maize is said to be found. Maize is native to North America. Another of these sculptures is said to depict an aloe cactus. The weird thing is that Roslyn Chapel was built in 1456. The general idea is that whoever carved these two depictions must have known about them somehow to be able to do so. Christopher Columbus didn't discover the Americas until 1492, so it's unknown how they would have known about it. The theory is compounded by an old stone tower at Newport, Rhode Island. It's a round tower and it stands on arches. Some say it was built by Templar colonists. This theory suggests that the Templars reached America in 1308 after fleeing France. Some sailed for Scotland, joining the ranks there, and others fled further west to the New World. It's possible that Henry Sinclair, Earl of Orkney, was with them. He was a Templar, 
and took charge of the voyage. With them were Niccolo and Antonio Zeno, who had claimed to have reached Nova Scotia via Greenland in 1389 in some letters and maps. There are issues with this theory though. Firstly, the carving of maize doesn't really look like maize at all, and it's suggested that it's a trick that the mind plays on the viewer. As for aloe, it's not even a cactus. It's a succulent. It's also native to Africa, not America. To add to these discrepancies, although the chapel was built in 1456, the carvings were added later, being glued onto the walls, so the dates aren't exactly reliable. The Newport Tower is questionable as well. It had been built as a windmill for grinding grain in the 17th century, somewhere between 1650 and 1670, according to archaeological digs. Even the Zeno brothers are questionable. They existed, but are believed to have created a hoax in their letters and maps. These letters don't even mention Henry Sinclair. Even the fleet is a bit wrong and changes history as we know it. The Templar fleet was relatively small and it wouldn't have been able to split between Scotland and the New World. Regardless, the story goes that the fleet changed their symbol from the cross to a skull and crossbones, creating pirates as a way to get back at the papacy. A generally believed theory is that the Templars were secretly treasure hunters. They did have treasures, yes, but the only artefact that they are credited to finding is the Shroud of Turin. But they were on the search for the Holy Grail, they were on the search for the Ark of the Covenant, and they were on the search for any other religiously magical and occult items that they could get their hands on. There aren't any records of this, which some people would take as evidence of a cover-up, but the Templars were an order tasked with protecting the Holy Land. They weren't treasure hunters at all, and would have been ill-equipped to do so. Even another conspiracy theory, the New World Order, involves the Templars, or more specifically the Freemasons. It's said that they had a hand in the Boston Tea Party. They drafted the Declaration of Independence, provided leadership during the Revolutionary War, and even drafted the Constitution. Except their roles have been exaggerated a little. Freemasons may well have taken part in the Boston Tea Party, but that was planned and executed by the Sons of Liberty, a radical group of artisans. As for the Declaration of Independence, only one of the Committee of Five was a Freemason, Benjamin Franklin. But the Declaration was pretty much completely written by Thomas Jefferson, who wasn't a Freemason. Of the 55 men to sign the Declaration, at least nine of them were Freemasons. Of the 39 who approved the Constitution, only 13 were or became Freemasons. George Washington was a Freemason, but didn't take it seriously, 
showing up for two meetings at his lodge in 41 years. Benedict Arnold, who won the battle at Saratoga in the Revolutionary War, was also a Freemason. However, it's not really possible that so few Freemasons could direct the course of history in such a grand way. Is it? The Templars themselves were real. But over time, the history of them has been added to, exaggerated and amended to fit all sorts of theories. This episode has been the first of hopefully many deep dives into conspiracies. I won't do a lot of them, because as you can tell, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to those. Thanks for sticking with me in this really long episode. I genuinely wasn't expecting it to be over two hours long, so thank you for listening to this whole episode and sticking with it throughout the entire history of the Templars. The information from this episode came from a book called The Templars, History and Myth by Michael Haag. The book is incredibly detailed and has a lot of references for further reading in it. I thoroughly enjoyed reading through it and learning about the history of the Templars and also learning about the conspiracies they're embroiled in. The reference for this episode will be posted on social media for you to have a look at. Speaking of social media, links to those and other ways to listen are in the episode description under my link tree. You can currently find me on Facebook and Instagram. Patreon is getting an upload of one of the transcripts each week as part of the £3 tier. The link to the Patreon is also on the link tree. And as before, you're welcome to pledge more than £3 a month and I'll find something extra special for the people that do. I do have an email set up on the link tree, but it doesn't open up a new email, so that's in the description of the episode too. Send me your spooky stories, unexplained events, and anything else you want me to read out. Or, if you have any corrections or issues with things that I've said, let me know and I'll address them as soon as I see the email. This is the last episode for three weeks while I take a short break and prepare for the second season. I'll be uploading short progress episodes to keep you in the loop of what I'm doing though. The next episode is going to come out on Tuesday the 25th of October, so hold on until then.